Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Kalanaki. He's Africa editor at Nation Media Group and the managing editor of The East African. He's also a very prolific columnist, and he's here today to speak with us about the elections last month in Uganda. In that election, incumbent President Museveni announced his win with just over 50% of the vote, but the main opposition figure, Bobby Wine, has denounced the results and claims they were rigged. Daniel talks with us about what we learned from the election and what's next for Uganda and President Museveni. Daniel, thanks for taking the time for us. Thanks for having me, Alan. So uh, we're here to talk about the Ugandan elections and, and what's coming up next. The election that happened last month was was clearly not fair uh, in many regards. It's clear there's a lot of irregularities. And obviously, with you know Bobby Wine being put under house arrest and the violence, you know, it quite marred the vote. I'm wondering, though, if you can tell at this point whether or not the vote would have come out any different if it had been fair in terms of the final outcome. That's an interesting question. And the short answer is no. So it's hard to tell what the outcome would have been in this election because there are things that were unprecedented. The violence we saw in mid-November was more intense than we've seen in previous elections and much closer to election day than we've had in the past. So it's hard to tell the chill you know, the chill effect of that on, for instance, voter outturn, which happened to be the lowest we've had in, um, you know, more than 20 years. The second thing was the shutdown of first social media and then the internet. It was hard to get a sense in real time of how the vote was turning out, both the delivery of materials, the, you know, turnout of voters, and kind of early results. If someone has touched up the numbers, you don't have a benchmark or a baseline where you can say two hours in, it was clear that you know this person was leading or was doing well in this area and so on and so forth. So I can't tell you for sure whether you know Bobby Wine would have won the um, election, whether Museveni would have snuck through at the end, or that would have gone into um, a runoff. And did we learn anything from the parliamentary side of the equation? I mean, I know the opposition parties defeated much of Museveni's cabinet, and Bobby Wine's party won 60-some seats, but of course Museveni's party still won over over 300 seats, which is the vast majority, even if that's a decline. So, so, so did that give us any clues as to, as to what the electoral sort of map looked like and where the support was? It did. Um, and if you look closely, if you, if you look at the right you know, kind of data sets, then you, you will see interesting patterns. The first is, generally, there is a, a high churn rate in the parliamentary races. Um, usually, it's between 50 and 60 percent. So one in two MPs generally doesn't come back. The fact that most of the ministers were in the central region uh, were voted out kind of speaks to the protest vote against the government and against the incumbents in the central part of the country. So that's kind of something that you pick up. The other thing, though, to note is that in the areas where there are allegations of electoral fraud, primarily in Western Uganda and in other parts of the country, where the president won overwhelmingly, the ruling party member of parliament also won. I think once we get a bit more data and look at it more closely, we will see if there was ballot staffing on behalf of the president, 
then the same thing happened for members of parliament and that therefore the NRM numbers in parliament you know, also benefit from whatever kind of hand on the tail that the presidency might have. The other final thing to kind of draw from the parliamentary race is that there was a lot of gerrymandering and an expansion of parliament. While the NRM's parliamentary share would have reduced, uh, you know, by notable margin in the old parliament, the gerrymandering and the expansion of the seats and the continuation of the special interest groups mean that they just keep expanding the pie and ensure that they have the two-thirds majority. And so before we even get to the allegations of fraud on election day, can you just remind everyone the sort of challenges that Bobby Wine faced in terms of campaigning uh, against President Museveni? Well, um, do you have all day? <laughs> it goes all the way back to, um, you know, the, there was a constitutional vote in Parliament trying to amend the constitution to allow, you know, Museveni run again, uh, remove the edge limit which was very violent, um, and that violence continued into, you know, by-elections in Arua where, you know, Bobby Wine's bodyguard was shot and killed, and then other people were injured. He and other members of parliament were violently arrested. Then there was a period where he was unable to, you know, hold concerts. The police refused to give authority for him to hold any concerts, including in his own private venue. And then that spilled all the way into um, the campaigns themselves. He was arrested a couple of times for ostensibly failing to uh, observe social distancing rules uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic, but that was interpreted as uh, mere politicking. At least 54 people were shot dead um, over two days. And then, you know, you have failure to be allowed to hold rallies, being thrown out of hotels he had booked, to the point that a few days to the election, then, you know, members of his entourage were being disappeared, some being, you know, one was killed in a traffic incident where they alleged that a security vehicle basically ran over him deliberately. In the last week of campaigning, Bobby Wayne was basically unable to put together a team to go out into the field because everyone around him had basically been either disappeared or injured or arrested. And many of these people are still in custody as we speak. We, we must also point out that as soon as he finished voting, he was then put under house arrest, therefore unable to you know, coordinate, kind of protecting the vote on election day or to just kind of put together evidence that is necessary for the court case that he's since filed. I'm just wondering, in terms of this next court case, uh, sh- should we dismiss that, you know, sort of out of hand, that it probably won't be in his favor just because of a lack of independence? Or is there any reason to hope for the sort of Kenyan outcome where the court does uh, show independence? I would be extremely surprised if we follow the Kenyan route, which is pretty much looking at the qualitative aspects of the election. I, I think any sober judge looking at those restrictions, looking at the obstacles, uh, you know, it was an obstacle course, really would probably be minded to annul the election or call for some kind of audit. My sense is that they will follow the precedence, the jurisprudence that um, has been set by previous Supreme Court rulings in Uganda, which is to argue the substantiality angle, to basically say, yes, these things happen, but can you actually prove that you know they then statistically made, allowed the other guy to win on a sheer count of the numbers. The argument against that is, 
how do you compute or how do you calculate the number of people who decided to stay away from election day and from voting because of the violence in mid-November? I don't think you can put a number to that, but if that is the argument that the courts will be looking for the applicants to make, as I think they will, then he stands no chance. Let's also not forget, Alan, that, you know, and I, I don't want to cast aspersions on, you know, the judges on the bench, but, you know, the judiciary is appointed by the president. And many of these people on the Supreme Court are people who've worked very closely with him. Some of them have held political offices uh, in the government. And, you know, they, they, I would be very surprised that the Chief Justice is in a recent appointee. And I would be extremely, extremely surprised if the argument is one that is qualitative rather than quantitative. When you look at the actual results themselves, I mean, it looks in some ways like a sort of strange election where Museveni lost in his traditional strongholds, and then he he won in regions that for a long time were his were his opposition. In what ways has Bobby Wine sort of remade uh, Ugandan politics and uh, presented a new sort of challenge to President Museveni? So, I think he's altered it in maybe three. Um, areas that I, I see. The first is that he has kind of brought the young people into the political conversation. Um, I think for the longest time, young people were mere, you know, participants rather than contestants. And there's lots of, you know, kind of young blood that's coming to the, the, the arena. The second thing is he's been able to bring the ghetto, as it were, into the political conversation. When he ran for parliament, he said once that parliament has refused to go to the ghetto. Now the ghetto is going to parliament. So he's brought, you know, the kind of people that traditionally, you know, are not part of the political elite. And it's not surprising that he then wins the central region, which is the most kind of urbanized part of Uganda. The third thing is kind of a return to what his critics allege is Ganda nationalism after one of the main uh, ethnic groups in the country, Buganda, uh, which gives a name to the country and which was a, one of the most powerful kingdoms before the colonial uh, period. I think what is going to happen is that it's going to open the door on some uncomfortable conversations about how representative and how equitable um, society has evolved under the Museveni regime. And, you know, there are allegations that most of the people in the plum positions come from Western Uganda, where President Museveni comes from. And they will try, I think there's an attempt to now narrow Bobby Wine's appeal to the Baganda. But I think that conversation is going to continue in the public domain in a way that we haven't seen in the last 35 years. And like you said, Bobby Wine specifically sort of really targeted uh, Uganda's younger population, and it is one of the youngest countries in the world. 78% of its population is is younger than 30 is a statistic you, you sort of see a lot. I'm wondering if this campaign also showed sort of the limits of targeting youth. Of course, youth are coming up all across the region, all across Africa, and there's been a lot of speculation about there being sort of a youth movement in politics. Did we learn anything about what the opposition maybe would have to do beyond just kind of 
uh, promote itself towards the youth? Is Did this also show sort of some limits and, and maybe chart a way that the opposition should go ahead to sort of expand beyond that? Absolutely. First and foremost, I think you need to win the youth, the youth ballot. And you know, if you don't win the youth vote, it doesn't matter how good you are. Um, you, you just can't win power. You know, in the case of Bobby Wine, but also other movements that, you know, we're seeing in, in, in across the continent, whether it's in Congo, Burkina Faso, you know, the Malemas in South Africa, uh, the Mwangis in Kenya, is that, you know, just sheer numbers um, might not be enough. You need to articulate, you need to show that you understand you know, statecraft and that you, you know, you're not just using the sheer force of majoritarianism and you can appeal to the guys who are already in the establishment who, you know, are open to the idea of transitions and change, but, you know, are worried that they, they don't want to hand the country, you know, over to upstarts. So I think you need to be better organized. They need to um, show competence, they need to make the right arguments, and they need to reach across the aisle. Because in an entrenched system, people on the other side have you know, vested interest in the status quo. And if you merely threaten to replace them rather than reach across and try to work with them, I think you find a lot of asymmetrical resistance through violence, through you know, the deep state actions. Also, it's hard not to sort of see a broader trend here just so close to the uh, Tanzanian election, which looked pretty clearly uh, rigged in favor of the ruling party there. Do you do you see a sort of democratic backsliding in the region, as some people are pointing to, or or in some ways, maybe do you see the opposite, that maybe it looks like some old regimes are sort of on their last legs? I am inclined to see it in the former. I think a backsliding of um, the democratic dawn that we thought we had. Two, two things have happened. The first is that the guys in power, you know, uh, and this used to be people who'd seized power through military means, through coups, and were trying to then, under pressure from the West, reform into uh, popular politicians. In many countries, they have learned the art of performing democratic rituals without really being democratic. You know, you have parliament, which you uh, gerrymander and make sure you control. In a civil service that you fill with cronies, you fuse your party, you know, into the state. So the ruling party, you know, is entrenched and feeds off the state. And then you can show these elections every five years. There might be shams. But, you know, you, you're ticking the box. We had an election, we have a parliament, we have a judiciary, never mind that you appoint them. So I think because of that, people are beginning to question, um, you know, the quality of democracy and whether it's actually worth it. And it doesn't help that, you know, kind of regimes in the West that traditionally used to support demo the democratic agenda and just don't give a damn anymore. Um, and, you know, Trump basically comes to mind on, on one hand, and on the other hand, you have regimes like China and Russia, which have a lot more influence and which, you know, are willing to look the other way as fundamental liberties are restrained. So that's one thing. The other thing that's happened, the lack of economic opportunity. And, you know, many young people in these countries are looking around and saying, who do these countries work for? We are of these countries, but we don't belong to them. We don't have assets, we don't have jobs, we don't have homes. So I think there's going to be then 
probably more questions asked about the role of foreign capital and whether foreign capital is not just in cahoots with many of these regimes making noises when it suits them you know to appear to be concerned you know calling for stability calling for independent investigations but really undermining the ability of local economic growth and the emergence of kind of native agency in these countries uh, you mentioned uh, uh, foreign capital, foreign donors, you know, and the ritual of democracy in a way. You know, Museveni has been a longtime ally, regional ally of the United States. And Museveni has used all this, of course, quite shrewdly. I'm just wondering how important have Western donors been to uh, President Museveni's continued hold on power? They've been key. They've been central to the Museveni regime. In fact, I think they are the reason he was able to take power, because once they withdrew their support from the Obote regime and turned it towards him in you know, 1985, the Nairobi peace talks, then he became the preferred you know, kind of candidate. You know, there, there are many ways of seeing this. Uh, one example is if you look at the atrocities that have happened in Uganda and those that have happened in other countries, the reaction has been quite different. Um, you know, if you compare Uganda, for instance, with Zimbabwe, the criticisms of regimes that are hostile to foreign capital um, you know, do not compare with what those who not only invite foreign capital but are willing to kind of procure its interests beyond their borders, um, as Museveni has done in Congo, in South Sudan, in Somalia. You know, the, the reaction is quite different. So, you know, I, I even imagine that what we're seeing in uh, Uganda today isn't necessarily kind of Western donors concerned about, you know, um, violation of human rights or governance, but really worried that, you know, their investment could go up in smoke should Museveni fail to manage the transition properly. So we're getting to a point where we must probably ask what might appear to be cynical questions, but ask whether the, the, the foreign agenda is aligned to, you know, the agendas of the um, local people in these countries. And what do you think happens from here? I mean, Museveni, if he ran again in six years, would be, you know, over 80 years old. I mean, do you think he could run again? This is his worst showing, you know, that he's had electorally. Um, you know, and there's been speculation about Museveni possibly trying to uh, line up his son to be a successor. Um, but that's incredibly controversial. So I'm just wondering, you know, he if he hangs on to this, to, to this victory after the court challenge, you know, where does this tee us up to looking ahead towards the next six years and, and beyond? That's that's kind of the million dollar question. Um, my instinct, you know, the little that I know about Museveni is that he would want to continue in power for as long as he's physically able to. And in the absence of strong contenders within the military or the political space, the ruling party, uh, he pretty much has an open runway ahead of him. So what could alter that you know, course of action, uh, either internal tensions within the military in particular, or strong arm um, reactions from you know, uh, the Western powers that have backed him, or a collapse of the economy that then rallies you know, the small middle class um, you know, around a transitional agenda.
you know, the, the reports of, you know, trying to place his son in power, I, I, I don't rule them out out of hand, but I think Museveni would even see his son as a threat to his power. S- someone told a story, um, you know, uh, we can't name the person, but had an offhand conversation with, with Museveni many years ago and, you know, asked him, why don't you, you know, when do you ever think about just going home? Why do you keep running, um, you know, for office? And he said, it's addictive. This thing is addictive. You know, he really enjoys being in power. He enjoys having all these chess pieces, being able to move things around. And I've never imagined seeing him on his ranch, kind of reading the papers and just hearing about the geopolitical developments in the region, you know, through, you know, the newspapers or through telephone calls. He must be at the middle of it. It's funny, that's actually what they often said about uh, President Trump as well, who who didn't really like the job at first, but then got addicted to uh, to being at the center of it all. So I think for for many people um, who haven't maybe been looking at the region for so long, you know, Uganda looks like a stable region in the country. But I think some people forget just how much internal conflict Uganda has seen since its independence, um, including the, the rebellion that brought Museveni into power. How much do you think people should be concerned about a breakdown in terms of political order and a rise in instability and political violence if, you know, if a transition uh, from the president is is not handled well? I think people should be worried. First, the fact that Uganda looks relatively stable is partly because the Great Lakes region is a very unstable region. You know, you're being compared with the likes of Congo, South Sudan, Somalia, Burundi. You know, they're not exactly paragons of stability, um, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So people would have to be worried and very worried because despite its internal contradictions, Uganda has played a stabilizing role in, you know, um, many of these countries. Now, I know this is a controversial point. Some people actually argue that Uganda creates the instability and then appears to manage it. But, you know, it's certainly a player in, you know, Somalia with the African peacekeeping mission there. It is a significant player in South Sudan. It's a player in Burundi. And, you know, uh, it's certainly one of the protagonists in Congo. So if there were to be an implosion in Uganda, then the equilibrium in those countries could also shift and you could then have a significant realignment of interests across the Great Lakes region. And I'm not sure I know or anyone knows how that would look like after the shouting. I think that's a very good, if uh, scary, point. Um, so, so this is a podcast where we talk about regional affairs around the Horn of Africa. Over the past year or so, we've seen President Museveni turn, I think, quite inward, you know, in the run up to this election. But but generally, he's a, you know, he's a major figure, like you said, in, in the region. Do you think after this, we'll see his role in the region diminish because his domestic crises are likely to rise? Or do you expect him once he gets the election a bit further behind him, you know, that, that he'll sort of turn back uh, once again and, and, and turn his sights on the region, which, of course, is experiencing so much turmoil at the moment. There are things that are going to determine whether he continues to look inside or outside. The first is just the nature of the domestic situation. Um, does Bobby Wine and his movement continue to become a major destruction at home? 
but then also what happens in these other countries um you know the americans would they come back into somalia uh, where does that conflict go and you know the ugandan troops have been there for you know 15 years or so um, is that an open-ended assignment is there going to be um, a development there that you know forces the troops to come home what happens to drc you know their political movements there does shakedi continue to seize control you know from the old kabila uh, cronies and can it then expand the sphere of influence from kinshasa to you know eastern congo and what is the implication there the big one to watch i think is the role of rwanda um because you know as you as you know relations between uganda and rwanda you know blow hot and cold seasonally and you know for a few years now they've been not just cold but they've been frozen there is also the fact that you have you know you know kenya's going into elections uh you know next year so it's going to be a bit noisy um who emerges out of that um and what kind of election does kenya have it's the biggest economy in the region you have tanzania under magufuli he's now in his last term he's been kind of strong arming you know his way through things how does you know do they begin to look at a transition you have ethiopia with you know the tigrayan conflict um you know does abi remain contain that remain on top does ethiopia continue to kind of expand its influence southwards with you know power diplomacy by power I mean electricity what is the impact of its dispute with egypt you know does egypt take advantage of you know the internal contradictions in ethiopia the way ethiopia took advantage of the arab spring you know to kind of push back so there's never an you know dull moment in the great lakes region and i think a lot of what uganda and seven are able to do outside the borders will depend on his ability to manage the domestic contradictions but also the developments in all these countries all right uh, thanks daniel very much for your time thanks for having me alan Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about Crisis Group or read our reports, you'll find us at crisisgroup.org or on Twitter at crisisgroup. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced by Mae Francis.